locus-locus-locus-locus. Next week, we'll talk with Kevin Martin, president of Peace Action, about the Trump administration's nuclear posture review, which would put Dr. Strangelove back in charge of our nuclear weapons policy. My engineer is Patsy Kohlberg. I'm Barbara Bernstein. We're going to go out with some music by the Neville Brothers. Thanks for listening. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Good morning. You are tuned to KBOO, and the time now is just uh, 30 seconds before the top of the hour, 11 o'clock. KBOO's Kickstarter is live. Go to kboo.fm slash Kickstarter and help KBOO build a city of media makers. That's kboo.fm slash Kickstarter. Coming up at 1130 on the Boo, Voices for the Animals welcomes longtime animal activist Matt Rossell about his Beagle Freedom Movement that's working to end animal testing and research. And now stay tuned, Radio Zine presents On the Ground Radio and a discussion of the new Marvel movie, Black Panther. KBOO's building a city of media makers. For 50 years, KBOO has had an open-door policy and trained anyone for free who was interested to learn to create radio and media. We believe in mutual aid a reciprocal exchange of resources and services for benefit of all. What a stale place Portland could become if we lose our diversity of voices and our creative climate that emphasizes fun, truth, beauty, joy, peace, love, and justice. We know that with our expertise and your support, we can keep this city creative, activated, and aware through the radio that we make together. Invest in future media makers and join us on Kickstarter today. Go to kboo.fm slash Kickstarter, and thank you for your support of KBOOM. Our responsibility as people struggling for liberation is to tell our own story, to decolonize that history, to capture that history for ourselves and give it our interpretation. So we say that we have a history of struggle, a history of fighting back. Marvel has struggled with the Black Liberation Project for many years, and it's interesting how they go in and out of it and how they think of it. and. Even how the X-Men series started off as a parable about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Our final culture and media headline, I spoke to author and activist Makani Temba, chief strategist of Higher Ground Change Strategies, who wrote the foreword to the new book, Marvel's Black Panther, a comic book biography from Stan Lee to ta Coates by Todd Burroughs. Welcome back to the show, Makani. Well, I'm so glad to be here and really appreciate what y'all do. 
Well, for last week's show, I had just seen the movie the night before, and I just had some really quick kind of snap reactions. And one was that the African diaspora is really not a factor. I really wanted the Black Panther to reach out to like the diaspora in London and DC and, you know, Melanesia or whatever. And, you know, he has a closer link to the CIA than he does to the diaspora. And then I was really kind of disappointed that it seemed like the African-Americans were thrown under the character bus in service to this kind of fantasy African ideal with superpowers and, you know, superior technology and respectability. And I guess, you know, if I was more familiar with the comic book history, I would understand that that character, you know, was just the villain. But I just didn't like the way it kind of set up this fantasy African kingdom against uh, African-American character that was like the, the bad guy. You know, I didn't actually take it that way. I saw the film mostly as a metaphor. And I'm not saying that it didn't have its places where um, there's things that I wish might have been differently. But I saw it mostly as a metaphor for our work, our movement, who we are as black people. And I felt like we were every character. I didn't see Eric's character or what some people may call Killmonger as a villain. And um, I, I saw him as a part of who we are, right? And I thought he had some really important lines about liberation, about freedom, about you know what it means to embody by any means necessary. And so I actually thought of it yeah, as, a, as a metaphor, as a parable, really for our work. What does it mean to leave folks behind, you know, in our work? How many times do we find ourselves as being Eric in the garden of the heart-shaped herb, where we don't realize what a tradition means, and we're so angry about our pain and our hurt that we feel like we get from black folks, that we walk away from institutions and structures and traditions because they represent our pain. So I, I really, I didn't come away with it feeling like, oh, folks were pitted against each other. I felt like it was a lot of food for thought in terms of what folks represented in all of us. There's a part of each and every character in all of us. And I guess since I've had more time to think about it, even though I really enjoyed the, the imagery, uh, a lot is being said about, you know, the fact that you know, we as black people can see ourselves in this kind of uh, very highly tech technological society that is beautiful, that the people look beautiful, that the scenery is beautiful, the place looks beautiful, and, and how important that is, especially for young people. So I'm not discounting that, but I'm just wondering if people haven't seen that before. But I guess I ultimately started to believe that when I considered the overall storyline that this was a very big budget, not attempt, but big budget narrative that links Africa and maybe all of the diaspora to the neoliberal project, the market, the sense of, you know, uh, Western technology or technology that is in service to not necessarily immediately like liberate us but is in service to some idea of modernity or being like sophisticated even though there's this wonderful fantasy world 
they use that fantasy world to kind of ignore like the real harsh realities of you know slavery colonialization and the current violence like that's occurring here domestically or on the continent through Africa yeah no I, I think I would agree with some of that certainly the current day oppression and I think part of the challenge in terms of the narrative was and being familiar with the comic books that's sort of the, the underlying tension of the story these last 50 years uh-huh. right where is Wakanda going to be in relationship to the rest of the continent because the way that they survived is essentially be, by being hidden from view and having the power to hide and go deep so again a metaphor right a metaphor for what does it mean to be separate and to have the capacity to be completely African and what do you come up with? And so in many ways, you think about that. I don't know if it's so much about modernity or Western tech as much as it is about the embracing of African brilliance as really the place where this stuff comes from, right? There's mm-hmm. so many things that we think of as technology today, like our number system and all kinds of things comes from Africa. And, and so in some ways, there's a part of this narrative that's about reclaiming our central place and creation of that knowledge. You know, that Africans went to Europe. They were the ones who made the Renaissance happen. Europe wouldn't have had a Renaissance had it not been for African teachers and, and African people going to Europe. And I mean, the first chamber music was written by Africans and played in Europe. And so there's so much that um, if you take that narrative of Wakanda as a metaphor and you think of how much Africans have essentially created the technology that we call Western, I think that's important. But I think more importantly, to me it's more about, yes, there are, there are challenges around the narrative. It always has been. As a comic book fan... You know, I I was so moved by the comic books as a kid because it was about a black world, right? You know, it's like Mm -hmm. eight years old, seven years old. Oh, my God, that meant so much, especially growing up in Harlem, where we felt like we had a black world, but this is a black world where where people were living out the full potential, it seemed like, of what we thought we would be when we were free. So for me, it was really important for my sort of revolutionary imagination as a child. And I think in many ways shaped, me to be a lifelong activist, right? That idea. Now, let's recognize, yeah, this comic book started. It's not now written by white men, but that's how it started. And that Marvel has struggled with the Black Liberation Project for many years. And it's interesting how they go in and out of it and how they think of it and even how the X-Men series started off as a parable about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So they've been having a conversation with black liberation for more than 50 years, right? And so in some ways, you can't look at the Black Panther film outside of the context of this conversation Marvel's been having with blackness. I also find it interesting that Black Panther is really the only superhero of the Avengers that has been undefeated, that there's really no defeating him except his own people, right? And even then... And there's ways in which he rises. So as a black person, as a kid growing up, to have the most powerful superhero be the black one meant a lot to me. You know, I mean, a, you know, there were so many places you turn on television, you basically see, well, 
this, here's the black person, they're about to die. You know, um, <laughs> Black Panther was really the character that was not that way, the one that always won, that always overcame. And for me, that was really powerful. And I guess the last thing I would just say is that I saw the film in Atlanta, and it was amazing to watch these kids come out of the movie doing the chest pound and so excited about seeing dark-skinned people on the screen, about just so many things. And growing up, I always loved Sherry's character, um, Takala's sister. That was like my first black nerd, right? That was like, yeah. me, right? And so I think that, that for those of us who kind of grew up reading and engaging with the story, to see the film, to be inside the film, to, to not necessarily think of Wakanda as a mimicry of Western civilization, but as the leading edge, and that whatever Western civilization is, it basically came out of the imagination of Africans, which is actually a, a, another part of the narrative. And yes, the Panther in particular has a particular relationship with the United States state, which is complex. There's nothing about the storyline that's not complex, you know, I would say. Um, right. And that it challenges us. And it also speaks to us around, like, well, what are we talking about when we say nationalism, really? What are we talking about when we're, when we're talking about our connection to the world? What does humanity look like? Are we here to heal everybody? Like, there's all of these really interesting questions. And even for the people who are organizers, it's like, so how are the ways we're both Eric and Takala and Nakia, right? And the Queen Mother. And you're like, like how we're holding all of that. And what does that mean? There's just so, there's a lot I'm still processing around the film. And that's as somebody who like reads the comics, reads the graphic novels. You know, and there's some twists in there too in terms of what some of the storylines have been. But I think bottom line is the net result is that I believe it's a film that has a lot for us to think about, some really powerful metaphors for us who are concerned with black liberation. And it's a really important cultural moment in the lives of black people, where black people who have not really spent a lot of time thinking about black liberation are talking about it as a result of this film. Well, I know that the debate will definitely go on. A lot of people are seeing the film as a kind of a other other type of metaphor, you know, between the the battle between you know Pan Africanism and and other types of, of ideologies. At the same time, you know, we're going to actually see the phenomenon of the movie also go on in the coming weeks you know as it continues to rake in like millions of dollars and I think that the discussion is good so absolutely absolutely and you know as a black woman who's a feminist and left you know there's very few movies I watch and it satisfies every part of me right <laughs> you know that, that doesn't happen that often so you know I wouldn't say that it does all that but I do, like, I agree with you. I think the conversation is important. And as organizers, our challenge is where do we meet our people and what kind of conversations do we have where they are? Okay. Well, on that note, we'll have to sign off. I've run out of time, but I've been speaking with author and activist Makani Temba, chief strategist 
of Higher Ground Change Strategies, who wrote the foreword to the new book, Marvel's Black Panther, a comic book biography from Stan Lee to ta Coates by Todd Burroughs. Thank you for joining me today, Makani. Thank you so much. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And now we're going to turn to international news with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author and activist. Well, Gerald, this week, critical readers of popular culture continue to point out the historical, sociopolitical contradictions, some say dangers, of the new Black Panther movie in regards to Africa, and especially Africa and the CIA. But let's continue to talk about real news coming from the continent, starting with Ethiopia. Well, as you may have heard, the prime minister of Ethiopia is seeking to resign. And one of the things I think we need to think about more carefully and more deeply is the relationship between Egypt and Ethiopia. I think that if you look at those two countries, you'll quickly realize that stretching back for thousands of years, there has been a relationship between the two, and there continues to be a relationship between the two, not least because Cairo sees control of the Nile, particularly the Blue Nile, which is in the heart of Ethiopia in terms of its origins, means that Cairo feels that it has to control not only Ethiopia, but the Horn of Africa more generally, as as Cairo sees it, as a product of national survival. And therefore, Egypt spends a lot of time seeking to destabilize Ethiopia. This has reached a new zenith because Ethiopia is now building a dam on the Nile, which Cairo sees as threatening its future stability, insofar as Cairo feels that this will give Ethiopia more control over the Nile River. Uh, This has led to threats of war on the part of Egypt, that is to say threatening Ethiopia with war. It's also brought other players into the neighborhood. I mean, for example, Turkey is playing an ever larger role in that part of Africa, not least in terms of being one of the few powers that is in place in Somalia, which is otherwise, as you know, a failed state, but also Turkey has serious problems with Egypt and therefore is aligning with Ethiopia. So this is a very serious situation that we're facing with regard to Egypt and Ethiopia. And I guess as a writer, one of the things that strikes me is that we really need a popular study of the 5,000-year history of the often frayed ties between Egypt and Ethiopia so that we can better understand and seek to influence the present moment. I don't want to leave the continent without us talking about what I consider the forgotten war in Yemen. More than 10,000 people have been killed and people are still starving there. And the Saudis continue to attack Yemen with assistance from the United States and Britain. Well, the news gets worse, I'm afraid from Yemen. The latest news, of course, has been the epidemic of cholera, which, as you know, has the potential to spread like wildfire and kill thousands, if not tens of thousands, if we're not careful. Then there's this role of the Saudis, as you've just articulated. But what's striking there is that the Saudis helped 
to block an initiative by the United States to list Pakistan on a so-called terrorist financing watch list. And this is taking place despite the fact that Saudi Arabia is supposedly one of the closest allies of the United States of America. But Saudi Arabia might be even closer to Pakistan. And so we see that this situation in that part of the world is becoming ever more complicated. But once again, as you've suggested, lost in the morass is the continuing suffering of the people of Yemen. I know that you attended the Pan-African Film Festival in Los Angeles. And while Black Panther might be getting all this attention and raking in, what, $500 million at least so far, there are lots of films out of the continent that get very little exposure. Why don't you tell us about a few that you think are noteworthy? I saw this documentary, Bigger Than Africa, which is on the diaspora of the Yoruba people who, as you know, are cited mostly in what is now Nigeria. And this documentary deals with the Yoruba descendants in North America, in Cuba, and in Brazil. I I see this Yoruba documentary as part of a larger trend. Uh, For example, there's a recent book called The Akan Diaspora about this ethnic group that is cited mostly in Ghana and their descendants in the Americas as well. What I'm suggesting is that we're seeing much more of a particular focus on particular ethnic groups in the Americas, for example, in the United States. I mean, we already know, for example, that with regard to Stono's revolt in 1739 in South Carolina, that that bloody revolt against enslavement was mostly spearheaded by Africans with roots in Angola. I also saw this documentary, Burkinabe Rising, on Burkina Faso. It deals with the recent history of Burkina Faso, including the killing of Thomas Sankara, their charismatic leader some decades ago, allegedly by one of his closest comrades, who then was chased out of office in 2014. But this film deals with the music of this West African nation. It deals with the culture, the politics. It's quite remarkable, and I would say the same thing about another movie about uh, Burkina Faso, uh, Musa Faso, which deals with farmers and agriculturalists in this West African nation who are producing what is now called a superfood on this side of the Atlantic. I'm speaking of tiger nuts, uh, which are sold in Whole Foods and other so-called natural food stores at a king's ransom although the agriculturalists in Burkina Faso basically get a pittance. And so it was a kind of expose that is well worth seeing. You know, when you mention the superfood, I can't help but think about Black Panther and Wakanda because there's this all this emphasis on the special properties and special materials and substances they have there which power that country. So here you have a movie about a real place in Africa that's producing a real superfood. <laughs> but people won't actually know about this story, but I digress. So anyway, go ahead about the next documentary. Well, certainly the ironies abound. <laughs> but with regard to the giant is falling about the events in South Africa that led to the recent elevation to the presidency of Cyril Ramaphosa, what I found striking about this very critical analysis of the role of the African National Congress ruling party in Pretoria 
is that like many analyses of South Africa, you would never know that there are five million Europeans in South Africa, that they mostly lean to the right, that they play a major role in the politics of that particular country. And it's very curious that that oftentimes gets lost sight of. Now, I should also quickly mention a, a number of documentaries about uh, African-Americans, uh, one on Sammy Davis Jr., the talented singer, comic, musician, dancer, etc., which will probably eventually play on PBS, so your listeners yeah, will be able like to it. see that. Yeah. Uh, another documentary that you probably won't play on PBS but should is on Maynard Jackson, the former mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, the busiest airport in the world, as you know, is in Atlanta, Hartsville-Jackson Airport, and his name is on that airport for good reason. Another documentary about Woody King, it's called The King of Stage. I, I really hope that people get a chance to see this documentary because Woody King is probably the premier theater producer of the late 20th century and early 21st century, uh, responsible for the career tra trajectories of so many different stars. I think of Denzel Washington in the first place, but there are many more besides. Then there, I saw another documentary about, about hip-hop. There, there's a whole proliferation about the, the origins of hip-hop, and this one was called Word is Bond. But the critique I would make of many of these documentaries about hip-hop is they don't get into the political economy of this particular genre. That is to say, who's making the money? Why do certain hip-hop artists get celebrity? And why are their lyrics trumpeted and other uh, hip-hop artists do not get celebrity? And so the whole political economy is something that's uh, sorely missing from many of these documentaries on hip-hop. And then finally, I saw this documentary, Back to Natural, about the question of hair of black people and the political and cultural and economic significance of our hair. Wow, another documentary on black hair? <laughs> yeah, but this one is much better than the Chris Rock documentary. Uh, they have more expert witnesses testifying as talking heads. They go to France to talk to black people there and to South Africa to talk to black people there about the question of hair. They go into court cases because, as you know, black women have had to file lawsuits in order to wear their hair in a certain way on the job in the United States of America. So I found that unlike these documentaries on hip-hop, which I was just critiquing, I found this one much more political and much more willing to engage the question of political economy in dealing with this sensitive question of hair. Just in general, uh, documentaries about real things and real people and real facts about the world around us have a tremendous difficulty getting exposure. Uh, and, and that becomes even more difficult when you're talking about an already marginalized people and us getting our stories out you know, from our voice. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, the writer and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Makani Temba and Gerald Horn. Also, thanks to Chantel James for her reporting and production assistance. The music we played this hour included Panamunk by Danilo Perez and I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free by Nina Simone, who would have been 85 on February 21st. This is On the Ground. 
onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of all our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Please join me Sunday, February 25th, 5.30 p.m. at the Bus Boys and Poets Tacoma Park location, 225 Carroll Street in Northwest D.C. I'll be reading and signing my new book, Olokun of the Galaxy. Thank you for tuning in. Keep raising your voice. Peace. No classrooms, no teachers, no students at Kebu. Only community members sharing their skills with one another and passing on what they have learned from another DJ to the next generation of programmer. We believe we all have something to teach and we all have something to learn. Knowledge should be free to access. Your support of Kebu ensures this. Help us build a city of artists, media makers. Long live DIY radio and join us on Kickstarter today. Go to kboo.fm slash kickstarter. Donate to the campaign and share it with your friends. And thank you for your support of KBOO. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is also available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Board meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month, starting at 6 p.m. Please call 503 503- 231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. Tune in to KBOO March 8th for a 24-hour celebration of women through music, cultural, and public affairs programming in honor of International Women's Day. From 5.30 a.m. on March 8th to 5.30 a.m. the next day, KBOO will continue our annual tradition of celebrating the achievements of women as well as pushing for parity, recognition, equity, and equality for women and women-identified folks in our community and in our world. The schedule for the March 8th, 24-hour celebration of International Women's Day is posted at kboo.fm slash IWD2018.
the more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship, to take care of.